Let's turn together to the passage that we read from earlier on, Romans 5, verses 1 to 11. Well known if you're familiar with the book of Romans, uh, and precious to us if you're uh, one of those people that uh, latches on to particular verses that, that speak to us of God's love and kindness and his grace to us through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that certainly uh, set out before us here in this passage uh, that we're looking at today together. One of the great obsessions that is shared by almost every human being uh, throughout the world, throughout the history of the world, is the quest for what Francis Schaeffer once called the, the quest for personal peace and happiness. The quest for personal peace and happiness. If you think of it the other way around, uh, nobody really wants to be troubled and miserable all their life. They want to be happy. They want to be content. They want to be secure. And, and regardless of, of a person's background, regardless of their circumstances of life, this is, is one thing that is guaranteed to be there somewhere in their heart, their mind, their aspiration, the way that they seek to carve out a life for themselves. Indeed, uh, so deeply embedded it is in the human consciousness uh, that the, the men who framed the American Declaration of Independence in 1776 uh, etched into the, the opening prologue, preface to that declaration, uh, that along with the right to life and the right to liberty, every human being has the right to the pursuit of happiness, an inalienable right, something that every human being in every part of the world, in every age of history, regardless of skin color, background, class, or whatever, they are entitled along with life and liberty, to the personal, to, to the pursuit of happiness. Some have uh, looked in different places to, to fulfill that dream and to, to seize that, that privilege, that right that they see themselves as having. Because as they wrestle with the question, well, uh, how do we find this happiness that we long for? How do we get this, this happiness that we so desperately desire? That's when they... The, the answers begin to go in 101 and more different directions. Not a few people think that if you can get the right kind of political order in place, the right kind of government and regime, then they will provide the kind of circumstances of life that will be safe and will be productive and will be uh, filled with the kind of joys that we feel ought to characterize life. And, and, and of course, uh, even though we pin our hopes upon our elected leaders. Uh, we know from experience, the longer we're in this world, that our elected leaders are guaranteed to do one thing only, and that is to let us down, to break their promises, and fail to deliver the dreams that we thought they could satisfy. Many others seek, seek happiness through wealth and through prosperity. Uh, they, they think, if only I had just a little bit more money, it's funny how few people are able to say, I've got enough money. Uh, Nelson Rockefeller was famously asked, the wealthiest man in America, indeed in the world in his day, um, he was asked, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money do you need to be as happy as you could ever be? And he said, just $5 more. No matter how much he had, he always felt there had to be a little bit more to make him truly happy to achieve this elusive dream. Some look in religion. Indeed, it's one of the things that uh, fuels religion through the ages and across the world, uh, that, that religion promises 
in some shape or form, personal peace and happiness. Uh, but by, by all sorts of different routes and through all sorts of different deities. Uh, and because the Christian religion, in one sense, is there amongst the mix of all the other world religions, especially in this day and age in which we live when all the world religions come crowding into our home on a daily basis uh, via the television and by uh, the press and everything else, we, we are forced to ask the question, what right has the Christian faith to lay exclusive claim to the promise of peace and joy to those who embrace the Christ that we present in this message in the gospel. And I think this is where this passage comes into play. Uh, because the, the, the other world religions, in what they have on offer by, in their message of, of life and salvation, uh, usually and almost invariably boils down to one thing, and that is if you try hard enough, you will get it. And, and because all their devotees and followers, no matter how hard they try, never seem to get it, never seem to achieve, reach this nirvana that is promised to them, uh, those who are their teachers and leaders simply say, well, you need to try harder again. And, and, and what's meant to be the pathway to peace and to happiness through these various religions becomes nothing more than a crushing burden that robs of hope and comfort in every circumstance, in every sphere of life. But, but you come to the Christian gospel, the message that you find in the Bible, then it's altogether different. Because as you listen to the, the message of the Bible, not only does it make great promises in the name of God, but it provides God's own answers as to how those promises will be met in full. Not through trying hard enough or being good enough, but by discovering how unbelievably gracious this God is as the giver of every good and perfect gift that comes down from above. The God who gives not just generally, generously but extravagantly to all who dare to trust the promise that he makes through his son. And here, as, as Paul unpacks the gospel in his letter to the Romans, and it's a, um, it's a, a detailed, lengthy exposition of the gospel from start to finish in all its fullness and in all its blessedness. It not only tells us what constitutes true and lasting joy and peace, it actually tells us how, where to find it and how we get it. Where to find it and how it can become ours. And that's the issue that Paul homes in upon in these verses here. And there we discover not only what real joy is, but where it's found, and also how that true joy is sustained throughout the life of faith, through all the changing scenes of life, in trouble and in joy. What is it that, that fuels the praises to our God and King and fires the joy in our heart, even in the worst of times? It comes through the gospel. And what's not only promised to us, but given to us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What are these reasons then that makes the joy that's presented to us in the Bible unique and utterly believable and absolutely the only kind of joy that's worth having and holding on to in life? First of all, and in the most basic sense from verses 1 and 2, it's a joy that flows from being justified in God's sight. It's a joy that flows 
from being justified in God's sight. The section opens with the word, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice, there's the joy word, in hope of the glory of God. But whenever you see the word therefore in Paul's letters, uh, you should stop and realize that's a marker that he lays down for. It's there to make a stop and think. It's kind of press the pause button, stop and ask yourself, what have we learned from what he's just been saying? So it does two things. It points you back to what he's just said, in this case in chapter 4, uh, before leading us into what he's about to say in chapter 5 and what follows. And, and, and the apostle is, is doing, in, 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 in making that connection, by pointing us back to chapter 4, he's, showing what, he's reminding his readers what he's just been teaching about the doctrine of justification. What it means to be accepted by God. Not only forgiven for all our sins and cleansed from all our guilt, but more than that, reckoned righteous in the sight of God. So that we can stand before him without fear and with complete confidence. But now he goes on to spell out in chapter 5, what does this great doctrine mean in practice? You know, it might sound good in a Sunday school class. It might stretch your mind as you try and get your head around it. But what, what difference does it make in real terms to know that we are justified freely by the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ? One of the, it's one of the many great examples of the way in which uh, throughout the Bible, uh, the, the great truths or doctrines that you find in the Bible um, are never meant to be simply admired. They're never meant, simply meant to be debated and discussed. The great doctrines in the Bible are, are literally the nuts and bolts of helping us to understand what it means to be a child of God and to live as a member of the family of God, the Christian life for his glory. So in that sense, it's always worth investing time and effort um, into genuinely understanding what these doctrines are in order that we might understand better what the Christian life is all about. So, so Paul here is arguing that when a person is justified, uh, forgiven, and accepted as, as righteous in God's sight, then certain things follow on, namely peace with God, joy, and newfound hope. Peace with God, joy, and newfound hope. The peace with God that he speaks of in this verse is not some kind of subjective feeling, uh, so often we talk about being at peace uh, um, uh, as though we've taken some kind of sedative and just this, this wave of just uh, relaxation flows over us. It's not a feeling. It's not something subjective. It's rather a conscious, uh, objective state of life. We know where we stand. We have confidence in terms of where we stand with God. You know, there's some people in, that we, we, we get to know in the course of life and you never quite know where you stand with them. Do they like me or do they hate me? You know, do they accept me or are they suspicious of me? And the doctrine of justification says we can always know where we stand with God on the basis of what he has taught us in this extraordinary truth at the heart of the gospel. Um, and, and, and given the introduction that, that uh, we have in, in verse 1 that connects us back to, uh, to what he said about Abraham in chapter 4. Abraham believed God, believed his promise, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Where does that lead us? It leads us into this grace in which we now stand. We stand in this grace. 
We don't flow in and out of it depending on how we feel at a given point in time. We stand solidly in this grace because of what we know about our justification. This privilege of acceptance and the joy that comes with it is ours always only through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we know where we stand with him and where he stands towards us, therefore we know where we stand in relation to God. And that, that, that great gospel truth undergirds the totality of Christian experience. That, that's why when Martin Luther, who was desperately, desperately longing to find peace with God and, and, and assurance that he's accepted with God, and, and had tried every conceivable route that was available, available to him within the, 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 the Roman Catholic Church of his day, you know, and he was, he was resting through the book of Romans and it was only when he discovered that God's righteousness in the Bible doesn't just speak about, about the justice that he meets out to undeserving sinners, but it speaks of the righteousness that defines him. And, and Paul is able to say in Romans chapter 1 that the, the, the reason he glories in the gospel is because there is a righteousness from heaven that is by faith, not by works, not by our best efforts, that we simply reach out the empty hand of faith and God gives us his righteousness freely as a gift, irreversibly giving us a new standing before him. And, and, and Martin Luther said, it was as though the gates of paradise opened for me when that dawned upon me, when the Holy Spirit opened my eyes to see those things. It was a, it was a revelation from heaven that transformed my life. And that's been true ever since for everyone who comes to appreciate this. And, and because of this, um, we, can, we can know that we are no longer condemned. Paul will, Paul will say in Romans 8, verse 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Your condemned person can never be a happy person. But their condemnation always hangs over them and crushes them. But somebody who is no longer condemned has every reason to be happy. Indeed, so much so that Paul reaches for one of the strongest words available to him. He speaks about, as a word that can be translated, to rejoice, to exult, to boast in. Speaking about the deepest of joys, he rejoices in this knowledge of the new standing that he has with God through Jesus Christ. He speaks of the hope of the glory of God. Hope, not in the sense of some optimistic dream, but a settled assurance. God has, has sealed something to us that, that puts us at rest. We don't have to ask questions about this anymore. To have peace with God. But also the, 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 the hope of the glory of God. Not, not, not looking to God and seeing him in all his glory. But what Paul is using this expression to, to point to um, the restoration of, of our lives as human beings into the image of God which was originally intended. In Romans chapter 6, where Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What he means there is the glory of God that was embedded in Adam. If you wanted to see an earthly manifestation of what glory looked like when creation um, was first established by God there in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, his wife, in a, in, a, in, a, in a shared way, they embodied the glory of God. But when they fell, when they disobeyed, they lost the glory. They fell from that glory. 
And that's been true of every human being since. But Paul says, in Christ we are restored. The image is renewed. And one day that image will be perfected so that we will shine with an even brighter glory than Adam ever had and which he lost there in Eden. So, so why, is this, why is this legal issue, the doctrine of justification, how we stand before the court of heaven, why is it so important? Well, think of it in these terms. You know, some of you might know a little about the world of property developing. Um, you know, when I was, uh, whenever I was here all those years ago, um, this building didn't exist, and, and this was a greenfield site. Um, and, and Andy Mackey was its owner. Um, and and uh, when, when it was bequeathed to this congregation, Andy Woolsey knows all about this, uh, what was the one thing that stood in the way of making the most of this? It was overcoming the legal obstacles to make the most of this land. And only when the legal obstacles were cleared could this building go ahead, could this whole development go ahead. And here's what Paul is saying up front. That if God is going to make something of the real estate of our lives, the legal issues have to be cleared up first and foremost. We have to know what it is to be reckoned right in his sight. And we are no longer under condemnation. And when we know that, when he's provided that through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all that he has done on the cross, then we can rejoice in our standing and also in the hope of what we will one day be. Secondly, I better move on more quickly. It's a joy that's sustained by the love of God. A joy that's sustained by the love of God. Verses 3 to 5. It's one thing to experience joy. It's another for that joy to survive through the ups and downs of life. And the troubles must come our way. I've spoken to several people over the past few days who I've known for longer than I care to remember. And we just reflected upon the passage of time, the course of life, and every one of them said, life isn't easy. The older you get, the more knocks you come your way, the more suffering you experience. It's one thing to experience joy uh, whenever all things are going well. It's another thing for that joy to survive when everything's going wrong. And, and here Paul is talking about how love is sustained in the lives of God's children. And it's at this point that so many of this world's joys and pleasures begin to crumble uh, wealth is no guarantee of health. So, you know, some of the wealthiest people in the world die an untimely death because all the wealth in the world can't, can't buy them good health. You have fun social life, which brings so much pleasure, doesn't guarantee a happy family life. And success in the world of employment and pursuing a career is no guarantee of security at the end of the day. And the final specter that haunts every pleasure is the reality of death. That we creatures are mortals and the time given to us on this earth speeds by very quickly and death suddenly becomes much closer than it ever was before. And yet the joy that Paul speaks of is able to survive the worst that this world can throw against us and that's why he says in, in, in verse 3, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. It's not just that he uses a strong word for joy, but he shows that this joy can survive the severest of trials. More than that, it's a joy that's actually strengthened and deepened through 
life's adversities. We know that, that when we go through trouble, it's not because God's abandoned us, but actually God is putting us through his mill to improve us, to strengthen the bond between us and him, to deepen our faith in him. That in the school of hard knocks, God teaches us the realities of Christian life and living. And he produces a three-link chain to show what trials do produce, the ability to go the distance, that we endure through suffering, leading us to, towards maturity, character, and leading ultimately into solid confidence, that hope that we've been speaking about, which altogether will neither let us down nor will they disappoint us. How is this brought about in real terms? Not least because you, you don't need me to tell you that even Christians struggle with discouragement and even Christians sink into the depths of despair at times. And here's the answer in the 8th verse. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, when we were in the worst of states, Christ died for us. Uh, he, he embeds this truth even more deeply into our lives, as, as Paul uses a tense and a meaning in, the, in, that, in that verb to pour out or to shed abroad his, his love in our hearts. Um, as an, an initial outpouring that, that we receive uh, the moment that we are brought to faith and, and into that relationship with God, an initial outpouring that becomes a permanent flood. It never stops. The dam is never exhausted. The wells of God's love never run dry. And actually, we discover that to be true, not in the, the, the initial rush of excitement whenever we come to faith and discover this new glorious relationship with God through Christ, but actually it's as we go the distance that the love and the reality of that love actually is better and richer and deeper. Think, you know, for those of you who are married, you think of, the, of, of how your relationship began with your spouse and you fell head over heels in love and there was that, that the chemistry that came together and, and, and there was just that thrill of this new relationship that eventually went into a, a courtship and then an, an engagement and then a marriage. And, and, you, and you were just in a, in a, in a, living in a, in a different world, intoxicated by this love. But then as your marriage has gone on, through bad times as well as good times, is it not the case that actually love gets riper and richer the older you get? That actually the bond that holds you together and keeps you together becomes more meaningful than it was in those heady days of your first romance? And that's what Paul is saying here. In our marriage to God, it's as we go the distance and God goes the distance with us that we discover that love to be immeasurably great, greater than we could ever imagine. He says it's the Spirit's work to take this, this love revealed in the pages of Holy Scripture, bound up with the life and death of Jesus Christ, and he embeds it in our hearts to take hold of us in order that we responsibly take hold of him. 
Thirdly, it's a joy that's anchored in the cross of Christ, verses 6 to 8. Paul passes immediately from speaking about God's love to speaking about Christ's cross. Verse 6, he says, you see, at, um, for while, while we were still weak, at, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And the more we think about the cross and realize how central it is to everything that God planned and everything that Jesus came to do, the more we realize that it can only be explained by the amazing love of God. That quote from that Swiss theologian that I mentioned. What's the greatest truth about God you've ever learned? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's only then that we appreciate that the benefits of the cross are channeled to us, not by a fleeting visit to the cross when you get converted, but actually living in the shadow of Calvary, as the Puritans once said. Not looking to the cross as some superstitious hope when things go wrong, you reach for your little, your little golden cross that hangs around your neck and you cling to it and you think maybe, maybe this will give me hope in some superstitious way. But it's by dwelling not just in our minds, but in our hearts forever upon what happened there. You know, when we lived in London, we used to go to the great art galleries there from time to time and got to know some people who were real art fanatics. And one thing that surprised us was that, that these art aficionados would, would not just go to a painting and look at it once or look at it for an hour and then walk away and say, I've done that one. They would go back to it again and again and again and again. And they would learn more and more and always notice little details they hadn't noticed before. And they were prepared to invest themselves in that. Dear brothers and sisters, why do we not do the same with Calvary? Why do we treat Calvary as, as some kind of Christian talisman as opposed to the bedrock of our salvation? Why is it that, that God commands us to come around this table frequently, to be brought back to Calvary, frequently. Because we can never, ever know what took place that day on that place too well. And every time we come, and the more we meditate, the more the cross and all it achieves will be etched into our, our hearts. What makes it so remarkable, Paul highlights three things. It happened at just the right time fitted perfectly into God's eternal plan of redemption. It displays the wisdom of God. Nothing happens by accident in God's design. And, and, and he's speaking about the wisdom of the divine plan that is bound up with what took place on Calvary. It happened while we were still weak and powerless in ourselves. It came entirely at God's initiative. God didn't wait until we got so far up the hill that led to him that we reached a certain standard that began to approximate to his high standard of righteousness. No, when we were weak and helpless and beyond redemption, humanly speaking, then Christ died for us. Expressing the depths of God's compassion. And it happened in such a way that, as Paul says there, Christ died for the ungodly. For the ungodly for the foul, for the vile, for the wicked, for the contaminated, for those who had wrecked their lives. Christ died for the worst of sinners. 
those, and this applies to all of us, those who have nothing in ourselves to commend ourselves to God. He goes on to bolster what he says with a human argument that, that makes the point that what God did that day, literally beggar's belief, is that you might possibly die for a good person if, you were, if push came to shove. But die for a, a bad person? Who would ever dream of doing that? But the very fact that Christ died for the ungodly is what gives the gospel its weight. It's what makes the gospel good news. God shows, proves, demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners. You know, there's no greater evidence of the depths of God's loving commitment to us than what God did, how he did it, when he did it, on that cross for the salvation of his people. And whenever we doubt, whenever we are perplexed or cast down by what's happening to us in life, if we want proof of God's love, go back to Calvary. Go back to the sacrifice that Jesus made there. Which brings us to the last thing. The joy that's promised to us in the gospel is a joy that thrives on fellowship with God. Verses 9 to 11. In this closing section, we see a, a subtle but important shift in the language that Paul uses to describe salvation. He, he moves from justification to reconciliation. It might seem like a, a minor technicality on, on our part, but he's, he's moving from law to relationship. Justification satisfies the demands of God's law. What does it achieve? The restoration of a relationship that was broken. Reconciliation takes place. So the law is satisfied. Relationship is restored. He's arguing from, from the greater to the lesser, essentially by saying, if God justifies, when God justified sinners, he had done the hard thing. That was the problem. Now he does the easy thing. When sin is dealt with, then everything else can be put back in place. That, that explains the, the, you know, the famous exchange uh, between Jesus and the Pharisees in that day in Capernaum when, when the paralytic, the man who was paralyzed, was brought by his four friends. They couldn't get him through the crowd, so they dug through the roof, dropped him to the floor in front of the feet of Jesus. And, and, and instead of saying to the man, rise and walk, Jesus said, my son, your sins are forgiven. And then he said, get, take up your mat and walk, which was the hard thing to do. We might think the hard thing was to do to say, get up and walk. No, the hard thing to do was to say, your sins are forgiven. Because no human being has got the right to say your sins are forgiven. Because sin is committed against God. And that's why the, the Pharisees rightly took umbrage against him. Who on earth has got the, who, who on earth is, is, has got the, the right to forgive this man's sins? Only God. And Jesus didn't answer their question. He said, okay, you think the hard thing to do is to make, make, give this man back the power of being able to walk again. I'll do the easy thing. I'll make him walk. Even though you think it's the hard thing. But that's just to prove that I've done the hard thing in saying, son, your, your sins are forgiven. I've done it. Because I'm God in human flesh. You see, having brought us out from under wrath and condemnation through the cross, God has gone even further. He's become our friend. More than that, he's become our father. You see, it's possible to forgive somebody else 
but the relationship not be restored. You still hold them at harm's length. You never invite them around for a cup of coffee. You never do anything together with them anymore. They're forgiven for however they've offended you, but I don't want you in my life. God not only forgives, he also becomes our friend. He enters relationship with us, a rich and enduring relationship. And so that's why he says there, since therefore in verse 9, we have been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved, will we be saved from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. You know, when he's talking about how much more shall we be saved by his life, he's talking about salvation, not, not just at what happens at that point of conversion. Salvation in the Bible comes in three tenses. We have been saved, we are being saved, we will be saved. It's an action, but it's also a process. And, and, and as he speaks about the present continuous outworking of our salvation, it means that we are growing through our relationship with God in Jesus Christ and by his Spirit. And as that relationship thrives, or as that relationship grows with us, our joy thrives in that relationship. Because nothing can compare by drawing near to God. Why do the Puritans spill so much ink over, over, over the, the doctrine of communion of God, within God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and communion with God? Because actually we were made not only by God, but we were made for God, for fellowship with God, and we are not truly human unless we are enjoying a rich and deep and flourishing fellowship with God. And where that, that fellowship flourishes, joy explodes within us. So let me ask you as we close, where do you, where do you turn for true peace and lasting joy in this life? It might be some of you, and it's your work. It's your work that gets you out of bed in the morning. It's your work that defines you. And you enjoy your work. For others, it's your friends or your family, that those that are in your life and you just love being around them and you're happy when you're around them. For some, it might be their hobbies or their sports. All those things are vehicles for joy. But John Newton surveyed all of them and many more besides, and he put it so well when he said, fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show, Solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children go. Jesus Christ is the key to true and lasting joy because he is the key to a true and lasting relationship with God in whom that joy is found. Let's pray. Lord, we gladly turn to you out of the emptiness of everything that this world has to offer. And we eagerly embrace Jesus Christ, your Son, our Saviour, in whom there is joy beyond all speaking. And we pray, O oh Lord, that as we grow in fellowship and communion with you through him and by your Spirit, may your joy explode within us and may it overflow to the world around us for Jesus' sake. Amen.